Bernie's uh, summary pretty useful. Uh, so uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, John Fair. John is the co-chair of, uh, of the program, as you know, uh, and I'm sure all of you know that John is a professor uh, of medicine at Northwestern and, uh, again, has been the PI of the uh, MAX cohort for uh, 20-plus years. How long has the MAX been around? Since 84. Since 84, whatever that works out to. More than 20 years. John. Thank you, Paul. What I'm going to talk about is the natural history of HIV infection as it relates to individuals who seem to be able to live uh, with this virus better than the majority of individuals and who get infected. Um, and um, what I'm going to, the bottom line is I'm going to indicate that in spite of seemingly uh, being able to control the replication of this virus, ultimately a lot of these folks who have been termed elite uh, controllers uh, do begin to progress and require uh, antiretroviral therapy. This data is old, 1996, and basically what Dr. Munoz at Hopkins showed was that um, about half, half of individuals who became infected developed AIDS uh, about eight or nine years after becoming infected. But there was a group, and he, I'll show you the slide where he did the um, manipulation, the statistical manipulation to figure out what this tail down here would be. Um, but it's also of interest to show that um, there's variation in what uh, the outcomes in people who've reached uh, what is the CDC defines as age, which is less than 200 helper cells. And you can see that while 50% uh, of those individuals will die in less than three years, again, there's a long tail of people who do, seem to do relatively well um, after reaching that uh, level of immunosuppression. And individuals who actually have developed clinical AIDS, um, half of them will die in about 15 months. But again, there's a tail uh, of some months duration where people seem to tolerate um, differently uh, the impact of, uh, of this virus and its complications. Um, this is the data that what Alvaro did, Dr. Munoz did, was to take the change in CD4 and viral load uh, in individuals who we had data on and then uh, bootstrap what the expected change over the next uh, several years would be. And he estimated that, you know, in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 percent of people who were infected would be alive 20 years after they acquired the infection, independent of therapy. I think that has turned out to be uh, a little optimistic, but it, it, it does, uh, we do know that in fact there are individuals who have lived longer than two decades with HIV infection and uh, seem, to do, seem to be doing pretty well. Um, the variation in this in progression, I, I think is, uh, we know a little bit about. Uh, it clearly matters how old you are when you become infected. Uh, it matters how, what kind of co-infections you may have. That obviously, uh, people in, uh, who have tuberculosis when they become infected have a much worse prognosis 
in terms of HIV, uh, unless the tuberculosis is controlled, uh, than the person who does not have tuberculosis. Um, there are people who have a long, uh, have a great deal of luck in being infected with a genetically de deficient HIV infection. There's the Australian cohort who were infected from a single, uh, by blood transfusions uh, from a single donor, and that HIV was deficient in some of the necessary components, and in fact, most of those people lived a long time uh, before ever getting uh, any drop in their CD4, uh, and, and so that uh, there are occasional folks who, who are lucky that way. The majority of the variation, I think, is very now clear, is due to the, the makeup of the host, the genetic makeup of the host. And the, um, the, the, the genetic, host genetics determine the immune response, uh, and uh, it, it is that which I, I think plays the major role in determining what the prognosis will be. Now, this just shows the effect of age at the time of infection. And you can see that individuals who um, are infected at age 20 do much better uh, and have much longer periods of age-free time than individuals who are infected uh, in the uh, late uh, 40s or later. And uh, so that age at the time of infection does seem to play a role in, in how individuals do. And this is uh, in a, I've said that tuberculosis and other infections worsen the prognosis. Here's an infection by a virus, the GBVC virus, which has no known cause of human disease, but it is a fairly prevalent virus. And, and individuals who are infected, as documented by uh, the presence of the virus, as determined by PCR, do better the, in terms of their HIV disease than individuals who may, become, may have been infected but clear it. In other words, the immune response which clears the GBC infection seems to uh, be a, a bad uh, effect in terms of the uh, uh, prognosis for HIV. So infection concurrent with the HIV infection generally makes things worse but it, uh, it, 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 in this case, it, made, it makes things better. Now, in the MAX, uh, which you've heard a lot about today, um, we have identified 57 men who either came in um, to the study infected and, uh, or became infected while under study and who survived without progression uh, clinically for 15 years. And we compared them to 180 men who we knew when they became infected, they were all seroconverters, who all progressed, uh, with, we said that they had to progress within 12 years to clinical AIDS or death, and in fact, you'll see that they progressed much more rapidly than that. We compared the characteristics of the long-term non-progressors with the comparison group, the progressors. And what you can see is they, they came, at the beginning of the study, they were roughly the same age. Um, there was a predominance or overrepresentation of African-American men in the group who did not progress as compared to the progressors, um, which is 
an interesting finding, and I don't have an explanation for that. The co-infections were um, uh, the common ones, such as hepatitis, at least evidence of previous hepatitis B infection, which was more prevalent in the non-progressors than in the progressors, interestingly. Um, hepatitis C was equally, was equally common in both groups, and the human herpes virus 8 that's for, responsible for Kaposi's sarcoma was equally prevalent in, in both the progressors and the non-progressors. We've known for a long time that the best indication of what will happen over time with HIV infection is determined in the first several months of infection. And this is, this is a paper from Bob Lyles and John Mellers, which looked at the viral load within 18 months of infection and then determined what the outcome was. And you can see that individuals who progressed to AIDS within three years had a very high viral load. Those who progressed to AIDS within three to seven years had a somewhat lower, and the, most, the best group were the ones who 18 months after seroconversion had not progressed to AIDS sometime after seven years or later. So that this is, this is the viral load within the first period of so-called set point, uh, when the initial rise, high viral load that occurs with in infection has settled down. And the point at which that settled uh, replication is occurring determines what's going to happen in the long run. And, in, and when you compare our long-term non-progressors uh, with the progressors, you can see that the CD4 level uh, within two years was close to 900 or between 8 and 900 in the non-progressors, but it had dropped to uh, under 600 in the individuals uh, who progressed more rapidly. The slope of the decline uh, per year was three times, four times greater in the progressors than in the non-progressors, and the viral load, this is all pre-therapy, obviously, um, viral load was much lower in the uh, non-progressors as compared to the progressors. The, as I said in beginning, in the beginning, the determinant that uh, is very important is which, uh, with regard to control of viral replication, which drives progression, is the genetic makeup of the individual. And if an individual is, um, gets HLA genes from both the mother and father that are the same, that we say they're HLA homozygous, and uh, that in a lot of infectious diseases has been shown to be a bad thing. In other words, hepatitis B is more, is more severe in patients who have the same HLA genes from both the mother and the father that are the same. You want hetero, uh, heterozygosity in order to be able to respond to the various antigens that uh, come in with uh, infections. And the, uh, this is a misprint. It's hetero, heterozygosity was equally present in both the non-progressors and the progressors. However, 
the HLA type that we know has been associated with slow progression, HLA-B57, uh, was much more prevalent in the non-progressors than in the progressors. And uh, the B35, which was associated with uh, more rapid progression from other studies, was more prevalent in the progressors. And the CCR5 heterozygote state was three times more prevalent in the non-progressors as in the progressors. So the non-progressors had the appropriate, more, more likely were to have the appropriate genetic background that was associated with uh, control of viral replication and, and slow progression. Um, however, um, this was, we, we had evidence that, in fact, viral replication was uh, controlled in the non-progressors. In the progressors, um, the 171 uh, of the 180 had viral loads greater than 400. None had a viral load less than uh, the level of detection, 50. So that all of these people were viremic. In contrast, the non-progressors, um, and Bruce Walker's group has defined a, a non-progression or elite non-progression progression is as having three consecutive visits with undetectable viral load. And you can see that 20 of the uh, individuals in the non-progressors could have been classified as elite non-progressors. And the majority um, had uh, between 400 and 2,000, uh, uh, excuse me, another subgroup, not the majority, uh, had, uh, were viremic, but had low levels of uh, viremia during, during the period we followed them. So that there was a, an overrepresentation of either elite control or viremic control in the, in the non-progressors. Now this is the bad news. Here's an individual who had undetectable viral loads from visit two or three, which was 1985-86, uh, uh, for a uh, number of up to visit um, 23, and then all of a sudden, um, for reasons that I don't think we understand, uh, he lost control of viral replication, but shot up, and you can see that then the CD4 level began to fall. And so uh, he was put on heart um, uh, and obviously then got some control of viral replication after that. But this is, the, the, unfortunately, what I think is the long-term prognosis for elite controllers. That sooner or later, um, the this interaction between the virus and the host is going to result in the ability of the virus to start replicating uh, and, um, uh, and then have the deleterious effects upon the immune, <coughs> immune system. Whether this, in fact, has something to do with activation, as uh, Dr. Rodriguez was discussing, is, I don't think, clear yet. Uh, there is evidence that elite controllers uh, in fact, are not normal in terms of the markers of activation. Um, and there's been at least one paper saying that, there, that you can reduce this hyperactive immune state by starting therapy 
even though the virus is controlled. And whether or not, as we move towards simpler therapy, better therapy, and earlier treatment, as many people are discussing, whether we'll be treating all people who are infected, independent of what the level of their viral replication or their CD4 count is, is a question that hasn't been answered yet. But I think it's going to be raised, and it obviously affects what Dr. Margulik was talking about, the impact, if that happens. If we start treating people very early, will this have impact upon this potentially accelerated aging that HIV imposes on infected individuals? Now, this just shows further that of the individuals who were non-progressors, 34 at a median of 19 years after we detected infection had to begin heart because of the drop in their CD4 and rise in their HIV RNA. Three of the individuals died. None of them were AIDS-related. All were, in fact, related to liver disease, which you'll hear more about later in the afternoon. And that contrasts with the progressors who started heart eight years after seroconversion, if they lived long enough to have heart available for them. You can see that many of them died before heart was available because, as is indicated, this study goes back to the early 80s. If you compare the non-progressors who went on heart to those who remain, as of last year, off treatment, you can see that the CD4 level in those who had to begin heart dropped dramatically. This is the level, 216 CD4 cells at the visit prior to beginning heart, as opposed to a comparable visit in the 23 who didn't start heart with a helper CD4 level of 600 or greater. And the slope of decline in the CD4 number was much more rapid, twice as rapid, in the individuals who had to start heart as opposed to those who remained untreated at the present time. And the comparable viral load is what you'd expect, much higher in those who had to have treatment as opposed to those who remain untreated. So I think to summarize, elite controllers have a lower set point. In other words, right after infection, they have controlled the virus replication to a much greater degree than the majority of individuals. This control is associated with fully differentiated CD8 cells with a high degree of function. And in the individuals who don't control the virus right away, their CD8 cells are not fully matured and do not function as well. So this relates, again, back to the 
the genetics of the individual, which is the determinant of the effector cells, such as CD8. In elite controllers, it's difficult to culture HIV from separated CD4 cells, as opposed to individuals who are not controlling HIV infection. However, if you take those cells and try to infect them in vitro, they're perfectly capable of supporting HIV replication in vitro. So that the difference is the immune system functioning on these cells. Long-term non-progressors have an over-representation of the most favorable genetic situation. They have CCR5 heterozygosity, and as you remember, CCR5 is the co-receptor with CD4. And in the people who are heterozygous for that, they have fewer CCR5 receptors on their cell surface, and that probably is the mechanism by which heterozygosity influences progression. The HLA-B5701 has always been associated with a more efficient recognition of the appropriate antigens of the HIV, and if you're lucky to have that, you do better than otherwise. Other findings are a promoter of the chemokine rantes, which interacts with CCR5. So if you have more rantes, it blocks HIV using the co-receptor. And so that's another finding in non-progressors. And other genetic manifestations which have been associated with non-progression are zinc ribbon domain containing in the nucleus of cells, the chemokine receptor CXCR6, for reasons that I don't think we understand. That can affect viral replication, and variation in the human endogenous retroviral element also can affect viral replication, and is associated with non-progression. In summary, then, in our long-term non-progressors, we had favorable host genetics, early control of HIV replication, a slower decline in CD4 cells, but an ultimate progression in 60% of these non-progressors after 18-plus years. So I'll close there, and thank you very much. Yeah, sure. If there are questions, I'll be glad to. Otherwise, we can go right to Dr. Sag. So if there are questions for John, now would be the time to ask. So let me ask John. I thought the observation that blacks were over-represented, I haven't heard that before. Is there any data that African-Americans progress more slowly? I don't think so. Is there? There was an early study from Hopkins that said that 
African Americans progressed more slowly in the max in the, in that component of the max at Hopkins, uh -huh. and it, that's the only other place I've ever seen it. Interesting. Yeah. So it looks like there are some and questions. The, I think the data on progression in African Americans is so confounded by access to care uh -huh. that it, um, it, it it's, it's difficult to, to sort that out. So, a good question. Um, explain again the difference in your mind between the elite controllers and the long-term non-progressors. Is it really just two terms for what's well, sort I think of the same the, thing? Um, elite controller refers to a non-progressor who maintains a control of bioreplication, so that when you measure with the commercially available um, HIV RNA assays, you, you, you find consistently that they're below the level of detection. Um, and now, long-term non-progressors, on the other hand, uh, can be viremic at low levels, um, and they are uh, at a greater risk of progression than those who um, are able to suppress viral replication completely. Um. So, do you think it would be possible to identify a genotype, a set of factors that so clearly predicted non-progression that that would come into your decisions about initiating antiretroviral therapy? Uh, good question, and obviously um, a very important question. The, um, I think if the uh, – I think – it's still, it would still, it's still difficult for me to impose antiretroviral therapy on somebody who has undetectable virus in their plasma. However, if their CD4 started to fall or if they started, became viremic, even at low levels, I would um, uh, start, I think I'd start treatment. The, the question of whether there'll be evidence of, uh, we'll ever be able to, in the clinic, do genetic testing that would give you a clue whether somebody's going to live with this more easily than somebody else. It, it, I mean, I, everybody's sending away for their own HLA mm -hmm. things now, and, and it could be that the cost of this will drop enough. We're doing it, you know, for the uh, atazanavir yeah, yeah. And, or abacavir, and, and so I, I think that may be the problem. So there's a question about you remember early in the way early, we're thinking about the 30th anniversary, right? So we're thinking about those earliest days before HIV was even uh, thought of. And one of the theories about AIDS was that it was caused by repeated STIs. Remember that? You know, that the immune system was burned out. So right. the question is, is there any evidence that repeated infections, and the question was chlamydia, but you could extend that to other ones, changes the rate of progression and let me add on to that. Uh, have you seen any cases of superinfection um, in the MAX cohort? No, but um, the, uh, I think it's a valid question. You know, how much uh, damage has been done or stimulation to your immune system has been done um, prior to HIV infection could be very important. I, don't, I just don't know. Yeah. Nice talk, John. This is kind of addressing that same thing. There was a poster at the Madrid International Meeting from a French group that I don't know and won't try to pronounce. Um, 
where they had followed someone as a long-term non-progressor in their cohort and had banked uh, virus because they were not undetectable. And then apparently what happened is they had a failure of prevention counseling and it appears that this person was infected with a somewhat attenuated virus to start with and then was infected with wild type virus and crashed and burned like everybody else who gets wild type virus. So two things, one is to me that's a rather dramatic um, failure of concept trial for the whole vaccine industry. Is that this person had attenuated a virus for 15 years and then got reinfected with wild type virus and didn't do well. Um, but my question was in, your, in, the, in the cohort that you have where people progress and then start to, or non-progress and then start to progress, are, do you have any information about super infection in those people? And yeah, we do have a, a, a few documented double infections. Um, and Jim Mullins at the University of Washington has worked with Joe uh, on doing this, and, and, and they do badly. The second infection, uh, my memory is, is that right, Joe? They, they don't do well. It, it, the second infection really moves things along. I'd, okay. okay. So they, he, Joe says they were not doing well to begin with, but then the super infection, the second HIV infection uh, really kicked off. A question about um, inflammatory markers in uh, long-term non-progressors. Are, are, are the long-term non-progressors, do they have any uh, interesting rates of infl other inflammatory diseases? Rheumatoid? I don't know of it. I don't know of Cardiovascular any data. Cardiovascular disease? No, the, the, um, that's a good question. And um, in other words, the uh, one Australian case in that cohort who did badly, who had lupus, <laughs> and, uh, and yet was infected with an attenuated virus, and she did badly. So the question, uh, this question is, are there any, is there any research looking at triggers for right. the kind of flipping someone from a long-term non-progressor to a pro progressor? What? Well, you know, it, we know that the virus that infects in 1985 is not, is not there in 1995 and certainly not there in 2005. That virus evolves. Um, and uh, again, Jim Mullins and Joe have done some nice work on what happens to that virus or the, the quasi-species um, that, that uh, in change over time. And, and the, um, it, it, I think that it, it's a very complex issue and it takes a, I mean, it takes a lot of work to figure out which clones of the virus are, are uh, present at this time as opposed to in the past. And um, in general, you know, the, uh, the virus outpaces the immune system the, uh, in, in the usual uh, progression. Uh, you, you get the neutralizing antibody after that virus has been displaced by a new virus. And uh, so it, yeah. it, I, don't, I don't have a good answer to your question. Great, John. I have more questions, but I think maybe um, in the, in the interest of the program, we'll switch um, from this to that. Um, that ends up being Mike Sag. Um, Mike is a professor 